0: we read the Bible, there are a few things that get in the way. One of those things is uh, get in the way of really understanding what those passages are, are about. And the first of those is when they are familiar, like this morning's reading is familiar. When they're familiar, we, we feel like we know what they're about, and that we don't have to do any real work to understand them, and so we let them lie as they are. We saw last week that when they're familiar they lose their shock value. We've had 2,000 years to come to grips with those readings last week. And this week is another familiar story, one that we know back to front. The feeding of the 5,000 men, not counting women and children. I'm not entirely sure why later people have just called it the feeding of the 5,000, because it really is the 5,000 men plus women and children. But somehow it's got shortened to 5,000. It wasn't Matthew who called it that. There are no titles in the Greek. The titles came much later. Another problem when we read these stories is we tend to read them as standalone stories, uh, with no kind of relationship to the what else is happening around it. We also tend to pluck out Bible verses willy-nilly and use them as standalone proverbs, fakatoki, wise sayings, again with no relationship with uh, what's happening around it. us. Uh, it's almost like the Bible is a Collection of random stories and wise sayings. But the Bible is not a collection of random stories and wise sayings. It's actually a series of books. And today's story, for example, is in a context. And that context helps us understand what that story is about. So, I'm wondering who can tell me what happens just before the story. Got any ideas? This is the test. Who's read the pew sheet? John. Hmm? John, that's a nice way of putting it. Herod had a birthday party, and as part of the birthday party, had John beheaded, and his head presented on a platter to the guests. So John died. That's the that's the kind of nice version of that one. So the story begins actually with Jesus hearing of John's death and the nature of John's death. And Jesus needing to go away to deal with it. I was reading, uh, listening to um, Pray As You Go yesterday and I was talking about this reading. And it talked about how sometimes Jesus needs to just go away and be alone with his father to pray. And I went, I think you've missed the point about what this is about. This is about... Jesus dealing with the death of his friend, his teacher, his mentor, John the Baptist. And so this is not just Jesus needing to go away, but this is Jesus dealing with his feelings of grief and fear and anger. And when he comes ashore, he finds a crowd waiting for him, who have also heard of it, that it is they also have heard of John's death. And they are dealing with those same emotions of grief and fear and rage at what has happened. Their prophet has been executed at this debauched party for a hated despot. And their feeling of powerlessness and a desire to do something about that. Now another problem that gets in the way when we read the scriptures is that they weren't written in English. And we often forget that. They were written in Greek or the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. A couple of weeks ago I went to visit the Imam at the local mosque and uh, I asked him you know, if he had done a whole lot of training, normally Imams like clergy have to go to university and do, uh, get degrees in, in their case, Muslim, Muslim studies, uh, Quran studies and uh, Islamic theology, etc. And he said, no, he'd done none of that, but they couldn't afford to pay anyone like that. Uh, so they asked him to be the Imam because he spoke Arabic and the Quran is in Arabic. And he said it's really difficult to just work off the translations because the Arabic words have a whole lot of meanings that get lost in translation. And so his job, being an Arabic speaker, is to hold the original language and those original meanings before the people of the mosque. And that's just as true for us. In fact... It's even a little bit more true because (coughs) Jesus didn't go around talking in Greek, he talked in Aramaic. So the conversations we have were spoken in Aramaic, translated into Greek, and then translated again into English. So there's a lot that gets lost in there. And in this story, the word that we translate as sick, Jesus healed their sickness, is actually weakness. Which the translators had to take a punt, they always have to kind of take a punt, they have to make some decisions about how to translate words, and sometimes they get it right, and sometimes commentators say they got it really wrong. And I'm not saying they got it wrong here, but in fact the word here is more than just sickness. They came to Jesus with their own grief, their own fear, their own sense of loss, and Jesus meets them in that. And he heals them in that. Now another word that's in there is the word compassion. The NRSV translates it as compassion. Some of the other versions says Jesus had pity. Pity is an interesting word, isn't it? Pity is the kind of thing that we might feel towards the people of Gaza. It's a removed feeling. Not something that we share with them, but we look at them from afar, from a position of comfort And safety and we have pity for them. Jesus doesn't have pity for these people. Jesus has compassion. He is sharing what is going on. He is sharing their emotion. And the Greek that is used for the word compassion. Actually means. If I can find it because I have drifted away from my notes. uh, Something like. I'll just have to make it up. Uh, it's it's the kind of emotion that goes right down to your bowels. It's gut wrenching. That is the kind of emotion that Jesus has for these people. Gut wrenching, bowel centered compassion, sharing everything that they are going through. Now another thing that gets in the way. From us understanding these stories Is we don't actually understand The world that Jesus lived in And there are a couple of things About this story that kind of Pass us over without us blinking an eye And the first is The size of the crowd This is a really big crowd Of people I mean 5,000 people for us is Smaller than the crowd you get at a Bay of PT Steamers game so well not that, not that big a crowd Don't need to take much notice of that For a crowd of this size at Jesus' time, this is bigger than just about every settlement except the large urban areas. This is a huge crowd. And for the disciples then to say, well, let's send them off to the villages so they can find something to eat, is on the one hand a caring comment, but on the other hand is a ridiculous comment those villages of two or three hundred people would simply not have enough bread to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. The crowd is too big. And when we consider that actually the crowd comes from those villages, who's going to be baking the bread in the first place? So, that's the first thing we miss. The second thing we miss is that these people are the poor people. And for them, hunger was a way of life. Now, one of the things about the story, and it being set straight after parents' birthday party, is that we are kind of offered a contrast of parties. One of the things about empires is, even the British Empire, I looked at the back of a book last year written about the Treaty of Waitangi, and I said, Maori were lucky because they were conquered by the most benevolent empire ever. And I went, you can't use the word benevolent and empire in the same sentence. The whole point of empire is that all the wealth and the food and the resources gets taken to the centre for the benefit of the people at the centre. In the British Empire's case, the people of England. In Rome's case the people of Rome. And the people who paid that price, in this case, were the poor people, the poor people of Palestine. And because of that, from day to day, they really didn't know if they had enough to eat. Hunger was a way of life. And so we have the picture of Herod's party, a party of opulence, of decadence, of gluttony and a debauchery, which as part of that party, Herod's has to have John's head presented on a, on a platter. And in contrast to that, we have the people of Palestine gathered around Jesus who are hungry. Now we have just had a whole series of stories about the Kingdom of Heaven. The Kingdom of Heaven is like the outrageously generous sower who throws seed willy-nilly all over the place, like the field where seed is sowed and then weeds are sowed. It's like uh, the mustard seed, etc., etc. And here we have another story about the kingdom of heaven, but instead of it just being a story, it's acted out. The kingdom of heaven is like when everyone has enough to eat. Now, one another problem for us when we read these stories is that we get hung up on how. How did Jesus do this? How did this miracle occur? That how question would never have occurred to Matthew's readers. They weren't interested in how it happened, they were much more interested in what it signified. And when we get hung up with how it happened, we forget to look at what is the story telling us. It's telling us that in contrast to Herod's kingdom, to Rome's empire, to every other empire and kingdom on earth, in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, all will have enough to eat, and then there will be food left over, twelve baskets full. That is an amazing picture, which goes back to the prophets who continuously talk about the fact that God wills that all people should have enough. So we are presented this morning with a story that we are familiar with, that we think we know what it's about, and we get hung up on how it happens, and suddenly we might find that this is actually a picture of the way that God wants the world to be, a world in which all have enough to eat. As I read this Gospel and thought about it and read the commentaries, I was reminded of a prayer that we pray every Sunday, the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. I wonder what we think we're praying for when we pray that line. do we just skip through it? For the people who Jesus taught that prayer to, when they prayed, give us today our daily bread, what they meant was, please God, today give us enough bread to eat. They were people who were hungry and needed bread. It was a prayer for real bread. And it is linked with the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. When God's will is done on earth as in heaven, all will have enough to eat. And there will be food left over. In a little over a month and a half, we have an election. And it's a chance for us to think about what kind of society we think God desires for Aotearoa New Zealand. And I would suggest that part of that is a society where all have enough. All have enough. And our task is to think about what that might look like and which parties offer the policies to get us there. Because we ain't anywhere close at the moment. We live in a land where, yes, some have a lot and others do not have enough. And we live in a world where we are relatively comfortable and wealthy and have more than enough and where so many others simply do not have enough to eat. While we throw out... I think it's something like 33% of our supermarket produce because it doesn't look right, because it's got dents in the cans, because the best-before-dates have passed. So what kind of world do we want to live in? And who will help us get there? (coughs) Today is also Peace Sunday. I was going to light a candle, but Marion cut me off at the past. So launched in with the liturgy while I drew breath, so we'll do it now. We hadn't actually talked about when we might do this, we talked about that I would do it at some point. That's alright. Tomorrow is the 100th anniversary when New Zealand joined Great Britain in the First World War. And about two or three days after that is Hiroshima Day. The First World War was a war that many would suggest should never have been fought. It was a war where 10% of New Zealand's population went to fight. 10%. Many did not come home, and all those who came home were forever changed. It was a war that had a profound effect on this country. And there probably wasn't a family that wasn't affected by it. My great-grandfather died in it. My grandfather fought in it. His brother died in it. Every family was affected. At the peace conference after the war, despite their best efforts, the decisions made sowed the seeds for the Second World War and for the Middle East conflict that we are witnessing today. Palestine and Gaza, Syria, Iraq, Libya all of those can be traced back to the decisions at the end of the First World War. It's a day for us to think about what causes war and what would prevent war. And I suspect that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children gives us some clues about what would prevent war. The Arab uprising, while America thought it was all about democracy, fundamentally was about people who were tired of being poor and not having enough, while those in leadership lived lives of luxury, and they rose up. So many conflicts are simply about that. So on this day and tomorrow, as we think about the wars that have been, and the wars that are. Let us pray that we can learn the lesson of the story today and dream of a world where all have enough, a world of peace and justice where all are fed.